The CAEH Training and Technical Assistance Program is a nonprofit consulting service with a mission to end homelessness. Their goal is to support and accelerate an end to homelessness by providing high quality, accessible, affordable, evidence-based coaching, training, and technical assistance. Choose from established and proven trainings or have something tailored specifically to meet your needs. Visit training.caeh.ca to book your consultation or training today. Meet their dedicated and friendly trainers and find out how you can end homelessness in your community once and for all at training.caeh.ca. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Now, here are Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door and Stefania Secha from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness with today's guest. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am joined, as always, by my amazing host, Stefania. Stefania, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, just living the third wave life, but safe and healthy and just doing my best. How are you doing? I'm good. And you know what I always forget to do right off the bat is why I would assume anyone knows who I am. I am uh, Michael Braithwaite from (laughs) Blue Door and joined by (laughs) Stefania from the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. I'm excited. I got my first shot of uh, AstraZeneca and um, I was telling you, I think I I thought I was a real tough guy because I didn't feel the needle. I was feeling, you know, so strong. And then my hundred pound stepdaughter told me to get over myself. She didn't feel it either. So (laughs) it's good to be humbled and it's good uh, to have that. And hopefully we are on the road uh, to safety, especially for our most vulnerable as always. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always glad to see that there are areas that are prioritizing equity seeking communities as well as uh, people experiencing homelessness. That's been really key and obviously dealing with the hotspots as well. So I am waiting for my, uh, patiently waiting for my vaccine, recognizing that there are people in front of me that need it more. Um, And so, yeah, I'm just excited though, every day hearing more and more people getting that shot in their arm. It's really exciting. Yes. So we can stop saying, you know, well, any other year it would be like this, but now, Mm -hmm. um, and I think so much I was out today when I went went out to get that shot, I had to travel about 40 minutes and I kept thinking, you know, during that, don't drink any coffee. Don't go like, where are you going to go to the washroom if you can't? Um, and you know, that's for 40 minutes for me. And I think of our most vulnerable who are out there all the time and how, you know, society is really shut down. So all those places that they could rely on uh, just purely for that. And I, I in one of our past podcasts, uh, Lorraine uh, from the sanctuary talked about, yeah, you know, she, they're out there handing out coffee and outreach and people are saying, uh, I can't, no thanks. I, I've mm-hmm. got to last through the night without going to the washroom. Isn't that, isn't that uh, terrible? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. But um, I uh, have, have no amazing segue, but I am really, speaking of things I'm excited <laughs> about, incredible getting a vaccine, <laughs> name the segue. Um, I am so, so excited for our uh, podcast guest today. Ooh, who's joining us? So we are being joined by the great Margaret. Uh, she is Sim Shan from the Eagle Clan of the Git Gat First Nation. She joined the nonprofit housing sector 25 years ago and is the CEO of the Aboriginal Housing Management Association. Margaret's career has been built on her dedication to serve and support the Indigenous peoples of British Columbia and she currently serves on both the CHRA's Indigenous Housing Advisory Caucus and the CHRA's Board of Directors. Margaret was also part of a nationwide coalition with the United Nations Special Rapporteur to the Right to Adequate Housing, Leilani Farha, and Indigenous housing and service providers from across Canada. Together, they launched a 100-day campaign to call on the federal government to prioritize urban Indigenous housing conditions and homelessness in the implementation of the National Housing Strategy as a matter of human rights and consistent with the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So amazing. Margaret, welcome to the show. Well, can I say something? Oh, yeah. Of course. Please, <laughs> please do. <laughs> well, Ni'it, hello in the language of my ancestors and Toyaksitnan. Thank you for having me here today. I'd just like to take a brief moment before we get into the interview to mention that AMA has created, and I know we're on radio and not video, but we created our custom red dress t-shirt uh, for all of oh. our members to recognize that May 5th as the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and so we honor that day today. The original t-shirt designed uh, by Satsi Naziel from Northern BC commemorates that Red Dress Project, and the Red Dress Project is an aesthetic response to more than a thousand missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, uh, started by Jamie Black and has become a symbol for national awareness. I'd also like to say, uh, Michael, kudos to the Blue Door uh, support for receiving the 2021 Community Builder Award as well at CHRA, making a huge impact in uh, your community in the York region of Ontario. So kudos. Wow, well, thank you very much. That is, uh, for our listeners, you can't see it, it is a beautiful shirt, uh, a beautiful shirt. And, and listen, this podcast is about you and your incredible journey and the incredible work you are doing. And just along that, uh, I want to dive in and first talk about how you began your career and, and what drew you to work in housing. Well, like most housing professionals, probably not initially on purpose. <laughs> I mean, especially in the Indigenous world, you know, I, a lot of my colleagues, uh, and you probably see this as well in your industry uh, out in Ontario, a lot of our colleagues, you know, went to school with degrees expecting to go into some illustrious career like accounting or, or legal or, you know, policy development. And all of a sudden, there's this interesting job posting somewhere in some unknown housing organization. Uh, and that was my story. I was actually a fresh university graduate in 1993 from Simon Fraser University with a brand new baby. Um, I actually was supposed to be going to law school. Um, but uh, after graduating from SFU, uh, I had a number of health crises uh, with my, my delivery of my daughter and made the decision that being a mother was more important than going after my law degree at that time. So I was walking around 
downtown mission expecting to you know find something maybe at save on foods you know who knows and then i saw a sign on mission native housing's front office door for a tenant relations coordinator and that's an interesting and unique job within the indigenous housing sector as well it was a very new position that was funded by cmhc in recognition of common tenancy challenges that many urban indigenous peoples faced when it came to getting in your standard uh, uh, urban tenancy agreements. So they started creating a position called a tenant relations coordinator. So I was one of the first people hired under those new programs funded by CMHC to help indigenous uh, uh, tenants understand rights and responsibilities uh, and to work with our community to help create successful tenancies. And that was 1993. CMHC got out of the game of, of funding new developments. Uh, many of our housing providers who used to get together under uh, CMHC for annual gatherings started to converse about the real need to either keep us as Indigenous organizations with CMHC, uh, often referred to as the fiduciary responsibility of the federal government, uh, or transfer the programs of our own Indigenous um, uh, communities to our own Indigenous-led organization. And I'll just finish this story off by saying, and uh, my daughter is 28 years old uh, this weekend, and I tell everybody that my daughter's first words were not mama, they were ama, because uh, I actually started this work in 1993, the year she was born as a part-time tenant relations counselor. And so AMA had its foundations when she was just a toddler. And that, as you can imagine, starting any new organization, the political debates amongst our people, amongst government, you know, I was fighting with myself in the car all the time. And my daughter just grew up staring at me thinking, what's wrong with mom? <laughs> So that's my start. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. And I just want to say that I feel like you would have been an incredible lawyer, although I am really glad that you are in the job, doing the job that you're doing today. I am such a huge fan as a, as a BC resident and watching the work that you folks have been doing. So I'm so like just pumped to have you on the show today to talk more about it. So the Aboriginal Housing Management Association, or AMA, um, from what I understand, it's the first housing authority of its kind in Canada and only second in the world. So can you talk to us about AMA's model and why you think it's one that should be duplicated across Canada? Because I know you've, you've been saying that for a while now, so I just wanted to like hear more about it. Well, I mean, if my boss and board ever hear this podcast, they're going to understand when I say that I'm thinking about going back to law school and getting my law degree because the foundation and evolution of the Aboriginal Housing Management Association, uh, being an urban-led organization, and considering both the provincial government of BC and the federal government are looking at tabling and passing legislation, uh, the UNDRIP legislation here in BC, it's called DRIPA. Um, you'd think they come up with a better acronym than that, than that. Um, but we, that's what we have. 
um, has actually shone some massive gaps in constitutional law, uh, systemic oppression, and the inability of governments of all levels to understand that Indigenous people dispossessed from their sense of belonging to community never ceded their rights as Indigenous peoples. And yet the governments of all levels are focused on the three distinction-based groups, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, rightfully so, but it still leaves out the marginalized urban Indigenous population, which sits on an average around 80% of the population of all Indigenous peoples uh, are in urban areas. And that composition of urban Indigenous people is a mixture of First Nations, Métis, status, non-status, migrating Indigenous uh, populations, immigrant Indigenous populations from around the world, and status unknown, self-identifying straight across. So it's a complex uh, community which requires complex solutions but solutions led by people that understand what it means to be an urban, dispossessed, indigenous uh, a person and the challenges they face in urban, rural and northern communities. And AMA is that. That's how we came together. We, you know, the ur most urban indigenous housing programs started because in the 1970s, when, when the federal government was first looking at what to do with all of the, the indigenous housing challenges across Canada, um, uh, a lot of displaced nations came together in communities. My organization that I started out with is a fine example. In Chukchnaquakwa nations living in the city of Mission for education, for health, for employment, uh, but no housing because of racial uh, uh, barriers, systemic barriers, uh, outright um, um, stereotypes and racism left the challenges to access safe, secure housing uh, uh, very real. And so they came together across BC, across Canada, um, and created their own urban Indigenous housing programs because they understood what each other was facing. And then that ultimately, as I said in my, my first answer, how uh, in the 1990s when CMHC got out of the game, uh, our urban Indigenous housing providers started to have a discussion about what is the right solution if we're going to have all of these programs devolved. So AMA, uh, the power of AMA's model is that it's a grassroots in nature. It's founded in the basic rights to self-determination. I mean, you know, very high up there in the UNDRIP uh, uh, legislation. We've we've we discovered it. You know, when we first got together, we started having conversations about we are the experts in our own communities, uh, and we've demonstrated that. If you look here in BC, of our 41, uh, 42 providers, uh, we, you know, and they're a mixture of the traditional urban uh, native housing programs uh, and provincial programs and support programs, so homelessness outreach, uh, shelters, transitions, uh, one-off programming. Um, all of our providers have an average of around 50 years of expert service in the housing sector. They've paid off mortgages, divested uh, assets, reinvested their, their assets into new developments, created social enterprises, you know, and, and all the time while delivering culturally safe services to the displaced urban indigenous populations seeking safe, secure housing. One less barrier right off the bat because it's for indigenous 
by Indigenous uh, uh, peoples. And our organization has seen several evolutions. I mean, we, we incorporated in 1996, actually, uh, um, September 6th this year, we'll be celebrating 25 years. We have yet to, under the current COVID drama, um, really focus on that marketing of the 25 years, but uh, we're coming up to our 25th year. Uh, and that evolution has seen several evolutions from the genuine uh, grassroots, every member is a part of the board, every member speaks to our constitution and bylaws, to realizing that in order to be an equal seat at the table with government, we need to have a business model that actually gives a sense of transparency to the public taxpayers, uh, to, to, to government, to you know, any businesses that might want to invest or work with us. And so uh, we started down the road in 2004 to create from uh, the grassroots model of all Indigenous housing providers are on the board of directors to an elected board of directors to a hybrid board of directors uh, in 2012, where we had a mixture of four independents, meaning not members, not receiving any money from, from the government for any housing programs, and not related to anybody running. And that's challenging in Indigenous world, you know, we're related to everybody. And so being able to make that degree of separation on our board of directors to create a hybrid, four independent directors, we called them, and three directors selected from the members because we wanted to keep that grassroots connection it, you know it's about our people so we need to keep our people with access to the program and that worked for for a while until we started to realize that the the social enterprise aspect of business the need to reach outside of the the, the siloed funding of housing uh, meant that we really needed to create that arm's length uh, full board. And our members were, you know, uh, cautious about things as well. I mean, you know, are the three elected members aware of my financial problems? Are the three elected board members aware of, you know, our governance instability? Whatever challenges a, a nonprofit may have been facing, there was always that real or perceived sense of conflict that there were three members listening to the CEO make reports about finances or operations. And so we eventually, uh, in just two years ago, created our brand new governance model where we we have a 100% arm's length board of directors split into six regions uh, and uh, um, BC Housing holds a current appointed seat that we're in discussion about the, you know, does that really work? Does it serve any real purpose? And is it something maybe we, we, we don't need uh, rather than, uh, um, you know, a token kind of a seat? So uh, right now we're, we're, we're very proud of where we're at, we're at. And given that we know the country of Canada is looking at an urban, rural and northern housing strategy, the model speaks very clearly to the capacity to mimic it on a national scale, divide the country into regional representation, have an arm's length board, you know, elected from each of those regions, you know, have them give them the ability to nominate. But central to our uniqueness is what we call the Natsamat Lelam, one heart, one home uh, committee, which is uh, same three elected seats from the membership. So 42 members get to elect three members to sit on it as a Natsamat Lelam committee. And they act as an advisor, uh, overseer, you know, if the board of our board of directors shifts the entire company in a direction that maybe isn't in keeping with the grassroots intentions, 
this not Samat Lalam committee can speak on behalf of the members to the board and say, you know, look, this isn't what we thought the company was going to do for our communities. What's going on? It's a level of accountability that maintains that access of the people to the organization. And it's been working fairly well for us. I mean, we're not perfect by any stretch, but we're two years in, and I think we've seen a lot of tremendous opportunities come our way, including the ability to be the support for the national entities looking to create a national uh, for Indigenous by Indigenous Centre. I think that's so great. And I think when we talk about solutions, particularly with housing, we always talk about how important to have that local grassroots um, at the table helping lead the work because you know we know the problems locally, right? So I think that's so incredible that you're building that model into a national um, uh, nationally, you know, so that we can see that kind of level of care and attention to be able to approach those complex problems with, you know, better solutions that actually meet the needs. So I think that's that's so great. Um, and and to build on Ama's unique work, there was another first for Canada that helped that you helped create, and that is the Building BC Indigenous Housing Fund. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about that as well. You know, starting from maybe how it came to be too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as I said, uh, when I talked about wanting to go back to law school and get my law degree so I can, you know, help our organization navigate these constitutional quagmires, um, you know, and, and, and I say this with all due respect, there are amazing people and leaders in place at all levels of government. Uh, and I was on a minister's roundtable uh, just a couple of days ago with a couple of ADMs and, and uh, incoming deputy minister. And I, you know, I said, there's great people in places, but the system itself is still largely colonial, racist, sexist in nature. And uh, despite this best of intentions, it's easy for government to chronically fall back to the status quo, even though there are people fighting within it, people indicating a willingness to have the conversation and allow, uh, in our case, Indigenous people to be at the decision-making table, at the funding allocation uh, uh, discussion table. And that's what we've been pushing for with with BC. Our our only agreement right now is with the province of BC. It's called the ISHMA agreement, the Indigenous Social Housing Management Agreement. It was originally called the ASHMA when we were called Aboriginals by government. But, you know, I mean, another symptom uh, of the challenges we face is, you know, that, that, that government's comfort level of falling back to the status quo. So as things evolve and get complicated, it's no longer acceptable to call us an aboriginal so we're suddenly indigenous um but that being said we you know we've had this conversation with the province of bc around you know we're the experts we know what's happening in our communities we know the flaws of the funding programs that have been put to ground to date so let ama work with you in the creation of and the delivery of these programs and you know it, it is a it is a very complex thing because government is structured in such a complex way where you know there's treasuries there's there's ministries there's silos and you know there and then there's limited resources as well so acknowledging all of that uh, BC Housing uh, said okay fine we agree let's figure a way to do this we have an Indigenous Housing Fund coming here's the template we were allowed to speak to some of the wording and the framework uh, around it we didn't get to speak to the money 
money allocations. We didn't get to speak to the unit allocations, but again, it was a first step and, and everything has to have a first step. And so the province through the BC um, uh, Indigenous Housing Fund uh, committed to investing 550 million over 10 years to support the building and operation of a targeted 1,750 new units of social housing uh, for projects. What we didn't really know at the time and didn't get to speak to, which again is, is, is a part of this whole constitutional quagmire issue, is that the province of BC, rightfully so, decided that their BC residents uh, were their BC residents regardless of where they chose to live, being on nation, on reserve as most communities understand it, or off reserve. And so they decided to extend that $550 million allocation uh, and target of 1,750 units to both on and off reserve, which has never been done uh, anywhere. And kudos to, you know, for taking that giant leap. The complexities that have ensued afterwards, you know, are, are things we're still working our way through both at BC Housing and at AMA, and then the whole relationship piece as well. Um, but yeah, we were able to work with, uh, and we worked with a number of First Nations, but, you know, again, it's that whole government to government piece where, where you know, a lot of chiefs and councils believe they only negotiate with government and AMA is not a government entity. We may at some point evolve to be a, cor a corporation maybe, um, but I don't know that we'll ever want to be a crown corporation, <laughs> heaven forbid. But, uh, um, you know, we're having to navigate those conversations around where does AMA fit when it comes to working in the on-nation communities that, that are trying to get projects off of the ground, uh, not to mention all of the uh, urban Indigenous. And out of those, we still have new urban Indigenous uh, programs that will be coming to ground uh, as a consequence of that Indigenous Housing Fund. Uh, and we look forward to strengthening that relationship with the province of BC. And a part of the, the outcomes that we're getting to is how do we create that place at the table without displacing anybody? We can't displace First Nations, Inuit and, and Métis. They have every need and core right to be at the table, but there is that complex makeup of urban indigenous and so you know we have regular meetings with the assembly of first nations and the housing infrastructure council and metis nation bc to talk about the reality that any of our 42 urban indigenous housing providers in any given region for the most part will sit at about 30 percent representation of their their tenancies coming from local First Nations in their area. That means 70% are not. And so, a, a, you know, a First Nation can't necessarily um, uh, be seen as be, being the pri primary uh, program delivery in, the, in any given community under that model. They can start their own and some have and have done amazing work. Prince Rupert is a fine example under Indigenous Housing Fund BC, where they have a large population of their local First Nation living in the city of Prince Rupert. And so they've built a number of housing programs uh, in the city of Prince Rupert under this Indigenous Housing Fund, and we've supported them through templates, uh, operational templates, funding templates, staffing templates, you know, all the complexities of a housing program because it's more than just bricks and mortar. It's about the whole spectrum of your governance model, your employees, your staffing structure, your wage structure, you know, your, your capital repairs, your 
on and on and on. <laughs> so we work, we're still working through this. It was a first step. It was a giant step. Uh, and uh, Indigenous Housing Fund 2020 was tabled uh, because they were over, how do they, oversubscribed. I think that's a common word governments like to use. Uh, they, they put out a limited pool of money um, and they get oversubscribed. So we're hopeful that through continuous relationships and, and negotiations with the province that we'll see another targeted funding program coming soon. Absolutely. I, I hope that does happen. Now, I want to uh, talk about something you mentioned and, and I've seen in action uh, even in York Region. So in York Region, when we did our point in time count, I believe about 18% of uh, people who were involved in that identified as being from uh, in Indigenous communities uh, or as being Indigenous. And, and so what, what happens after that quite often is, hey, why, why aren't we doing any programming? Why aren't we? So you have non-Indigenous groups like Blue Door and others say, well, why aren't we doing? But we, we have learned a little bit over time. And, and you know, really that whole thought of, uh, nothing for us or, uh, without us. And, and the whole thought around uh, Indigenous programming should be led by Indigenous organizations and groups. Um, but quite often it's still not happening. Um, what, what, how can governments and organizations across Canada, and I, sorry, I should say we did work, we, we did step out. I reached out to my friend Steve Teakins at Nama Res and said, Steve, can you come up here and, and do this right? And he said, absolutely. And I'm pleased to say it took us a while but now we have uh, Indigenous programming led by Nama Reza in York Region, but not about us. Uh, I'm wanting to know how governments and organizations across Canada can create the space or make sure that Indigenous leadership is happening in their communities. Yeah, you know, and that's such a, a um, complex question with a complex answer because we know that, uh, you know, housing is a, is a core need. And if there isn't enough units available in, uh, uh, you know, uh, a location of preference, they, our communities will go wherever they can get access to a safe place to rest their head. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the concept of for Indigenous, by Indigenous is about the real challenge of our uh, communities having, and I think you might have heard me talk about this with Dr. Buckman at the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association in healthcare, you know, it's easily tran translatable to housing. The concept of implicit bias uh, is real and perceived on both sides. And so as Indigenous people, uh, and I can speak from my, from my own experience, uh, you know, uh, in my life as applying for tenancies, my initial fear is always, you know, they, they all loved interviewing me on the phone. Uh, and I actually had one tenant, one landlord say to me, well, you sound like you'll be a great tenant, not one of those welfare Indian types. And I just said, I'm going to be right there. Like I hung up that phone and this was back in the day, not cell phone times, right? I hung up that phone landline and I jumped in my car and I flew to his house and I banged on his door and his face just dropped when he saw that I was Indian. And I just said to him, you know, buddy, I said, I'm a university graduate. I'm in a full-time employed job with a child and I wouldn't rent from you just on your racial stereotyping. And I walked away, you know, but that's a position of privilege that I had. I had a husband that had a good job. I had a good job of my own. I had the luxury of being able to say, take your unit and shove it because uh you know i'm not gonna live where i'm not wanted 
But a lot of our people face that real challenge and they don't have the luxury of, you know, dual incomes, good incomes where they can pick and choose, you know, where they want to live. And so this concept that you're talking about in terms of, you know, non-Indigenous organizations making space, making sure that Indigenous leadership is happening, it's a reality that we're facing simply because our, our people end up going wherever they can get access to a unit. What Indigenous, what governments and what organizations across Canada can do is do what you did. You make sure you have a local Indigenous representation helping you through that, that complexity, right? Helping you understand the fears, the real fears that a lot of our communities have just in reaching out to ask for a place to rent, a place to sleep, right? That sense of belonging that we as human beings are always just looking for. Uh, and learning to understand that that implicit bias is a two-way street, meaning even if you're 100% non-judgmental, you've, you've looked inside of yourself and addressed your own implicit biases and you're 100% genuinely just welcome, they have a fear that just because you're not Indigenous, that that bias is probably still there. And, and, and that's not necessarily, you know, accurate all the time and probably not accurate many times, but it is a very real fear. And so having that cultural sense of safety. So my, my, my good friend, Rosanna McGregor, she's um, on the Not So Motley Alum Committee of our board of directors. And she's also the uh, CEO for Williams Lake um, Friendship Center uh, and has housing units, but she also has a transition facility. And she gave me this example about uh, the difference between non-Indigenous organizations helping Indigenous people and Indigenous organizations. Uh, and she compared it to uh, the sense of safety LGBTQ community members might, might be seeing. She said to me, Margaret, when people come to our transition, which is an Indigenous-led transition, we have dream catchers, star blankets, uh, cultural artifacts that automatically give a, a visual sense to anybody coming in the front door that they are their culture is safe here and she said it's akin to the LGBTQ community where if they're given a choice to go to provider A who's got a rainbow on their door or a rainbow in their window uh, and provider B that doesn't there's just an automatic sense of welcoming and safety and and I actually you know I I double check this. I went and talked to a few of my friends that are within the LGBTQ community. And I said, is that real? And they're like, yeah, 100%. You give me a rainbow on a door, I automatically know it's one less thing I have to explain about myself. So making space is about understanding not only your implicit bias, but their fears, and then being able to ask yourself, what can I create here? That will at least convey that message that I, I I'm open I I'm 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 understanding and I'm going to support your need for a sense of belonging a sense of cultural safety uh, and governments need to fund that stuff because that's the other piece I mean Adam Vaughn and I uh, talk about this all the time you know most uh, of the 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 targeted funding pro for projects um, fails to acknowledge that cultural safety for our community requires a sweat lodge or requires a, a, a smudging room or requires, a, you know, room for dancing or room for, for canning fish. I mean, a lot of de developments, housing developments, 
don't take into account cultural practices. And if, if, if we can start to understand that stuff costs, it's a variance, it's a variance in development. And if government can understand that, we're one step closer to having that sense of safety and inclusion across the spectrum. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's getting there that I'm sure is, is one of the biggest challenges. Um, and let's talk about barriers. So, so what are some of the biggest barriers facing Indigenous-led housing today? And how is your organization working through them? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I alluded to it, you know, a little bit around that whole constitutional uh, um I say quagmire, but, you know, and it's funny because I remember sitting with all of the urban Indigenous housing leaders uh, three years ago in West Vancouver. Uh, We invited the Indigenous Housing uh, Caucus Roundtable to come to Vancouver and negotiate what this would look like to create a for Indigenous by Indigenous national body. And uh, I remember Stefan Corvo uh, uh, looking at me and saying, Margaret, this will never happen. We have constitutional barriers to this. And I was like, well, and I won't say it in the language I used at that table because we were in closed doors. But I said, if we can't go go through them, then we'll go around them then. And, you know, I mean, it, it's big words, but it's also a big, big problem. The fact that our governments do still fail to, to acknowledge their implicit biases and do fail to acknowledge their, their system is structured from a top-down narrative. Their system is structured not just for Indigenous, but for, for all of their programming for the most part, is really about what can we do for you, as Leilani Farha uh, uh, referenced it, out of a state of benevolence, as opposed to true empowerment, as opposed to truly believing that the people have the power within in them to affect the change for themselves. And so let us be at that table. Let us create the the solutions. Let us guide the decisions, guide the funding models, uh, and and just hold that extra seat at the table for us. Uh, But they tend to feel stuck with DRIPA, with UNDRIP, that they can only have those conversations and try to make space for the First Nations, Inuit and Métis. Great, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll herald the day that I know for sure my brothers and sisters in the, the Assembly of First Nations truly have that seat at the table. But equally important is that urban Indigenous representation because of those complexities. We all heard them last week when when uh, Jesse Thistle shared his you know very very heart wrenching and gut wrenching story of his life and his journey and his pathways out of addiction, his pathways out of homelessness. There is a level of 
that uh, indigeneity that needs to be led by Indigenous people for Indigenous people so that people like uh, Jesse Thistle and many, many others that are looking for those pathways uh, to safety and to that sense of belonging can have it. And the biggest barrier is government's chronic systemic need to fall back to the status quo. We've got great people there, though. Like I said, we've got wonderful people there. I mean, and the other barriers are... Um, that sense of um, inadequacy, I guess, maybe the, the sense that uh, we as urban Indigenous people uh, get lumped in with anything that ever went wrong with any Indigenous people or entity. So when you hear stories about some chief that got a massive bonus, you know, and is spending the money of the people, that we're all corrupt Indians, you know, you have an organization where there there happens to be some some mismanagement or, you know, we all get colored with that brush. It's very easy uh, for not only governments, but the country of Canada and BC to fall back to that oh yeah well what did you expect there you know they, they didn't know any better anyways they don't have the skill they don't have the capacity um you know and lee miracle said to us at bc nonprofit uh in in december you know poverty is a policy decision and that's not just indigenous poverty that's poverty across the across the spectrum uh, and the reality is until government stops using the 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 uh, systems that oppressed us to hide behind those systems that could empower us, we will constantly be having those barriers. Yeah. And so we we fight it by by doing what we've done by creating that arm's length professional board, you know, take away the 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 tools that government or public can use against us, and create the model and mechanism that demonstrates our professionalism, our capacity, and then continue to be that voice, you know, continue to be that advocate. Sometimes we gotta be 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 direct and straight, and and maybe you know throw some punches out there once in a while about the failure of government to make those decisions that should have been made. And, and ideally, you know, I mean, we, we try to do it with respect, but sometimes, you know, when we've been so disrespected, you can't help but say enough is enough. And so we continue to advocate, we continue to rally our friends and our colleagues and our, our advocates locally in BC and across the country to share that story and, and to share the voice which is what you're doing with us today. And we greatly appreciate this opportunity. Well, it's, it's also an opportunity for us, right? I think it's so important to have these conversations across the board, across the spectrum. Um, so, you know, that's why, again, so excited to have you on. And when I'm, you know, introducing you, I was really particular about bringing up your work with CHRA and its caucus and also your work with Leilani and um, and the work connected to the urban Indigenous strategy. And I feel like our conversation's been building up to this question. So, you know, given that uh, urban Indigenous peoples are eight times more likely to experience homelessness and that Indigenous homelessness in major urban areas ranges from 20 to 50% of the total homeless population, you know, you love being part of this call to see that urban Indigenous housing strategy implemented Canada-wide. And there was a signal in this up uh, or this recent federal budget announcement that that was going to happen. We were under the impression that we'd be hearing more about it, but it didn't happen. 
So in April, can you talk to us about the role you've played to get one and why it's so key if we want to end homelessness in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll be be very blunt about this. It was a kick in the stomach for me. Uh, I, I actually, I, in my career of 27 years uh, in the housing front from being a tenant relations counselor, so hearing and seeing the challenges our community face right up front um, to, you know, becoming the executive director of my own housing program and then becoming the CEO of AMA and working with CHRA and working with Leilani and other Indigenous organizations. We work with Australia, the uh, Australia Housing, uh, Aboriginal Housing Northern Territory. Uh, we've worked with uh, New Zealand, you know, there, there's a lot of conversation about that empowerment of Indigenous people uh, for Indigenous, by Indigenous that resonates with any country that's experienced colonization and you know it, it, it it's easy for me to joke and say my daughter's first words were ama but you know at some point as a basic human being you you reach a feeling of exhaustion about you know having said the same like my story hasn't changed I mean maybe some of the tools have changed but but in 27 years the the reality that indigenous people never ceded their rights because we were dispossessed the systems that caused our dispossession, residential schools, 60 scoop. I'm a 60 scoop child, never been connected to my culture or my community or my sense of belonging. You know, and I can understand where our urban indigenous people have this, this gut-wrenching sense of dispossession. And so when, when you know, we heard allusions to it, I mean, I, in 2018 at BC Nonprofit, when Evan Sedal was, was uh, uh, first hired and brought on and he came to BC Nonprofit, and, you know, the poor guy, I, I, I just had had um, finished uh, a very aggressive round of chemotherapy for a very aggressive cancer and uh, radiation. And so I, I had lingering effects. That's my excuse anyways. I had lingering effects that, that meant I had little translation between my brain and my mouth. And Jill Atkey had walked up to me and said, Margaret, you need to do the closing for Evan Sedell, CMHC. You know, we're great, grateful that they're back in the game. And so Tom does his thing. You know, we're so grateful the feds are back in the game. Jill does his thing, her thing. And I get up there and in my mind, I'm thinking, meet the new guy, same as the old guy. And this was 2018. Well, lo and behold, I go to shake Evan's hand because this is pre-COVID where you could shake his hand. And I go, well, you know, we are grateful the feds are back in the game, but I can't help but say, meet the new guy, same as the old guy. And as soon as I'm out of my mouth, I saw Evan's eyes twitch. And I was like, oh dear, how do I, how do I backpedal out of this one? And I said to him then, I have to be honest with you, Evan. I was there in 1993, four, five, when BC was negotiating with CMHC over the devolution of urban indigenous programs to the province of BC. BC stood by our side and said, you cannot transfer these programs without AMA playing a role. And the Fed said, David Clough of the day said, we don't care, not to us, to BC, we don't care what you do with these programs as long as poor Indians get housed. And I told Evan this story right on the stage because I wanted him to understand where that sense of mistrust from me was coming from. And 
boy, I've never seen an eye twitch as much as I did on that stage. <laughs> and Evan, you know, to his credit, he said straight out, fair enough. And you know, Margaret, I'm, I, I can promise you some good news is coming on the horizon. And, and I know you've heard that before. And, you know, I, I trust me, it's coming. And, and, you know, Evan is one of those good guys. Like, you know, he, he, he put his heart and soul into lobbying and advocating and, and working to affect change for, for urban Indigenous uh, populations and sat with us many, many times to try to affect those changes. Um, and, and yet here we are. 2021 and Adam Vaughn and you know another fellow another you know good guy he sat with me he sat with our our organization he sat with CHRA promising that something is coming so when when that announcement came out I'm not alone in this we were watching on pins and needles waiting for the big fourth stream you know we're going to do a dedicated funding stream and not a word not a word. I mean, we were in the back channels, just flabbergasted. And I was pretty pissed. And pardon my language, but how can we be this far along with so many cues of optimism and promises that have net failed to net themselves? And I received a number of phone calls from government officials you know, acknowledging that this must seem frustrating, but rest assured, we're waiting on the humor report. We're waiting on the PBO report. We will carve out allocations. Feel free to punch out, punch away if you have to, because we deserve it. So we have been. If you look at AMA Twitters, you look at AMA social media, we're calling pretty harshly on the government's failure to recognize urban Indigenous peoples. Um, and so is CHRA, so are many other people, OFIFC, the BC Association of Friendship Centers. Lots of good stuff in the budget. Don't get me wrong. You know, again, there's a lot of good things that go on. But, you know, what I've said to Evan, what I've said to, to, to Minister Hassan, what I said to Minister Duclos before him, you know, when when you fail to acknowledge the urban Indigenous communities as communities in and of themselves, just like you acknowledge First Nations, Inuit and Métis, you further marginalize our communities. You cannot continue to do this. So, you know, I, I, I have to say I'm back to meet the new guy, same as the old guy in sentiment, and I pray I'm wrong. I pray if Minister Hassan is listening to this, if uh, Adam Vaughn is listening, if the housing critics from all the parties are listening, this cannot continue. Our government needs to stop working within in, in these closets of, of funding pools and recognize the four Indigenous, by Indigenous strategy has worked. Alma has demonstrated it for 25 years. We can do this nationally too, but you have to empower us. CMHC is working with us. I should say that uh, CMHC is is uh, working with AMA to do a demonstration uh, partnership agreement where we can flow through uh, pockets of money directly by Indigenous, for Indigenous peoples in our own community in, in the province of BC. So we're hoping that can be another example and template to demonstrate to government we have that capacity to do it. Absolutely. And I think it's it's so important, you know, at at the CAEH, we kind of took an approach of great. There were some wins. There, there, there wasn't as as much as we expected, but recognizing the good things that did come from the budget, certainly more than than before. 
uh, which is always good movement. But again, it felt really incremental um, and just not enough. So we kind of took a very like, good job, yes, and here's some analysis, here's identifying the gaps, here's where we need to do better. And def certainly the strategy uh, was top of the list for us as well. Um, so, so building on that, what would make an urban indigenous, indigenous housing strategy successful? And what would be some of the integral elements in that strategy that you would like to see? Yeah, I think that the real key lies within the FIBI Centre that was proposed by multiple parties at the HUMA um, interviews. Uh, the reality that we can take the the representation model that we created here in BC and make it a, a, a nationwide type of a model where you have uh, regional representation on the governance model, you have a vehicle created within the governance model for the grassroots urban Indigenous housing leaders to have a voice back to the board but not control the board because they're obviously, you know, we're talking about the, the, the transfer of, of hopefully millions, maybe a billion or more dollars to, to such an entity. Um, uh, and then have that capacity to, to self-determine where the key priorities ought to be. Certainly, you know, in saying that, it, it elevates a level of, of um, fear and accountability that, you know, we, we now, it gets real. We are now the ones that have to speak to our community and deliver to our community. And, you know, we all know as housing providers and experts in the field, it is never enough. You know, there always can be more. And, uh, you you know, what, what community, what target population is the priority today? What is the, the, the funding focus, et cetera? Um, but we also recognize that a successful strategy needs to have that advocacy vehicle and voice for the full spectrum of housing because housing is more than just the bricks and mortar. Actually, my communications team at AMA and I were talking about that. Housing can often be the end product of meeting the other basic needs, right? If you think about it from a health lens, if you think about it from an education lens, if you think about it from an employment lens, uh, from, from any uh, avenue of life, um, housing is at the core of that. Because if you don't have a safe place to rest, how are you going to focus on your health issues? If you don't have a safe place to rest, how are you going to focus on addictions? If you don't have a safe place to rest, how can you work? How can you go to school? How can you raise your child? How can you reunify with your child? All of the issues that surround uh, uh, life in its broader spectrum requires us as human beings to at least start with having a safe place to rest our head. Grand Chief Doug, Ch Doug Kelly and I had that big debate about uh, he was advocating for a community member to, to maintain tenancy uh, despite the uh, drug behavior becoming a risk in the, in the community. And, uh, you know, his argument to me was, you know, Margaret, if, if I can't get him a safe place to just rest, he will never be able to focus on what it'll take to make those changes out of the addiction pathway that Jesse Thistle talked about. Uh, so yeah, you know, for me, I think it's going to be about making sure we have not only what we call at AMA the Natsamat Leilong Committee, which is a vehicle for the voice of the community, but 
a vehicle for health professionals, a vehicle for homelessness professionals, a vehicle for uh, you know, uh, children and family, a vehicle for elders, you know, because that's a, another big rising issue is where are our seniors? We talk about aging out of care. We, you know, my seniors are telling me I'm aging into care. <laughs> where are you going to get me a culturally safe aging into care facility? Uh, and so we need to be sure we're having that kind of inclusive governance model that that ensures uh you know like cmhc right i mean cmhc's programs are are vast they're not just the bricks and mortar they have mortgages too that's the other spectrum of housing can we support home ownership on a broader scale as well and what does that look like and then the whole how do we bridge the gap between our on nation communities our metis nations communities our inuit communities and our urban indigenous communities and i think that's going to come from a for indigenous by indigenous lens i think it's the only way forward government can't do it for us there uh there is still a disconnect i remember after the budget came out uh, our local MP called me. So, what do you think? And, and oh, of course, you did. Like yeah, some good stuff in there. And then I, I mentioned the lack of uh, the, the strategy. He's like, "Well, what are you talking about? We, we did this and this and this. You know, we did almost like that, that. That should be good enough." I said, "No, no. But you need, but really, to be honest, and again, a very nice person. He's done a lot, but really had no clue what I was talking about. Why the need was there? Um, I don't understand why is there if we just throw some, you know, do some more programming or throw put a little money here and there." Um, and again, understanding that housing, um, and he's got a million other things. That's not the only thing on his radar, but, but it was, you know, it, it made me understand like, okay, this is probably why we're not moving forward quick enough because it's okay. You know, you might have a few people who truly understand it, but getting everyone on board to really wrap their, their head around it, it, it takes time. It takes time. And so I think we are all uh, disappointed and hopefully like if, if everyone keeps putting that continual pressure on as well as educating and creating awareness as you are doing right now, um, that will happen. Um, and so lots of exciting things happening uh, at AMA. I'd like to hear about some of the things we should know about that you're working on right now. And take this time to highlight them. Yeah, you bet. I mean, um, I'll start maybe with some of the more corporate level stuff. Uh, we've been in discussion with the province of BC around finding a, a pathway to bridging that um, uh, uh, equal seat at the table kind of a, a notion, rather than being recipients of whatever the government of BC decides we should be receiving, helping to design that, helping to implement that. Uh, and, you know, there are capacity issues. I mean, our, our organization, when I got hired four years ago, uh, was grossly under-resourced in terms of staffing. We, we were resourced enough to be a delivery uh, vehicle, but not to be a leading vehicle, not to have the staff and capacity to actually help create new programs to help create new new ideas and and support our community. So so we started to have the discussion uh, when I first got hired four years ago around how do we elevate our relationship beyond the ISHMA agreement, uh, which is really just an operating agreement like many other housing providers, right? You get a budget, you have to adhere to it. Here's your 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 dues, do nots and and end of story. But when it came to being that advocate and voice for our community on the broader scale and convey 
saying to the government the 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 gaps in some of their their service delivery and i know people across canada across the world uh you know they look and see all the great things we're doing in bc and think we got it all made but there are those barriers right that i alluded to earlier about the systemic barriers of of status quo governments just you know fall back to that status quo practice of benevolence and and while it's best of intention can often yield some some very poor results and so uh, we started with Minister Selena Robinson uh, you know pretty quickly uh, where she said straight out and we agreed you know unanimously we do not want to become a crown corporation because that's one way to get your equal seat at the table uh, and and definitely we don't want to be a crown corporation so we've been doing our own internal research and evolution we created a document out of all of that research that got released last year you know COVID has just caused such a blur for for not just for us for everybody I'm sure we're all gonna come out of this when whenever we're able to come out of this and it'll be like waking up again going what was that where did those two years disappear to but with with uh, Minister Selena Robinson we agreed that we were going to create a relationship protocol agreement that defined the role for AMA with government in housing. And, uh, but to do that, you know, we had to answer a few questions. We had to do some research and, and really give the empirical evidence on the value of for Indigenous by Indigenous. So we created two reports out of that uh, last year. We, we had Cleo Breton, a partnership report written with UBC and, uh, oh God, I can't remember the name of the other acronym that, that was there. You, you'll, you can see it on our website. Uh, um, and it was about municipalities across BC, just looking at at municipalities across BC, how many municipalities have implemented the concepts of reconciliation and understand the importance of an urban or a, an Indigenous housing strategy, not even just urban Indigenous. If you look at some of our communities, there's a very strong role for local First Nations. Um, and then in other communities, there isn't to be just simply because there, there isn't a big enough population. And so uh, that's where you need the urban Indigenous leadership at the table. And the statistics were appalling. You know, they demonstrated a massive gap in the, in the, in the province of BC in municipalities, even recognizing the value of implementing the concepts of reconciliation, never mind understanding the need for uh, Indigenous housing to have its own focus. 9% of all the municipalities in the province of BC have anything, any mention of Indigenous housing within their, within their municipality. So we've got gaps to deal with there. It was a good, good, uh, a good uh, work progress for us to talk about where we need to target some of our, our, our education and our advocacy, uh, especially for our providers in all of those municipalities. The other report we issued was an, a report by Urban Matters. And they did a economic analysis of our 42 providers. And they were able to demonstrate that for ever, every dollar, one dollar that government gave any of our 42 providers, we returned $2.30 sense back in economic spin-offs, reduction in other services, direct savings. So pretty substantial impact statement for us. And I mean, there, there were many more statistics. But what those two reports have done is, is put us in a position now to create a very first BC-led for Indigenous, by Indigenous, urban Indigenous housing strategy, which we have an Indigenous company called Indigenuity uh, working on. That was a huge acronym. <laughs> and believe me, I'm, I'm hoping we'll find a nice two-word two, 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 two uh, title for this report because 
boy, trying to tell everybody we created a, a for Indigenous, by Indigenous, urban Indigenous housing strategy, <laughs> BC. I don't even know what you'd call that. Um, but we're working on that with Indigenuity uh, while we're also working with a uh, Lynn Warburton uh, who is doing a, a communication stakeholder strategy that talks about how do we elevate our, our conversations, kind of like what you guys are doing. This is amazing. You know, the ability to raise issues, have open conversations, conversations, educate, elevate, you know, maybe hopefully create other partners that can be our advocate for us. So we're doing all of that work in the background to strengthen the the, the role and presence of AMA in the province of BC. Um, but we're also working with our providers. Our providers are coming to the table every day with new innovations. Uh, Vancouver uh, Friendship Centre has got a, a brand new project coming to uh, 1015 East Hastings. Uh, it's five different projects in one. So the vision is to create a building that consists of a permanent permanent shelter, supportive housing, affordable rental housing, and market rental housing, in addition to a ground floor social enterprise space and underbuilding and underground parking. So they're going to have like, I think, 80 units of permanent shelter beds for people and families experiencing homelessness, 25 homes with supports for people who are ready to move from shelter to independent living, 85 new affordable rental homes for low-income families and individuals, and 53 new market rental homes. So the shelter will be replacing a dilapidated building that the Friendship Centre has been managing for the past 10 years. Uh, so amazing. And I think you've heard that we had one of the first passive houses built in Nanaimo. Uh, Adam Vaughn is a big fan of that one. Uh, Natsamat Lalem from the Nanaimo Aboriginal Centre uh, built one of the first passive houses. And, you know, the amazing priority there is also understanding. One, it's cultural. Uh, because we're focusing on environmental, uh, you know, sustainability and, and you know, reconnecting our, our community through the design. But it's also about understanding that poverty is not just about being able to afford your rent. It's about being able to afford your, util your utilities. And for most of our facilities across this country, especially in some of our northern and more remote communities, the utilities can outstrip their, their budget in, in a heartbeat. And they, can, they have a choice to make. Do I have a warm place or do I have a place? Or do I put food on my table? So Passive House was a great innovation that, that gave some ability to demonstrate not only a safe, secure, culturally appropriate environment, but also affordability in day-to-day -day living so that whatever monies they have left after they've done paying rent can focus on those other key uh, key priorities. And then there's always that whole, as I said, you know, the two the two competing factors is our, our youth aging out of care. Um, uh, we have more, and I've heard this repeatedly in statistics, and you guys may have heard it from uh, Cindy Blackstock. We have more children, Indigenous children in care now than we're ever in residential school. So it's a huge problem, especially when Indigenous populations are outpacing population growth four to one. Um, and uh, uh, former Prime Minister Paul Martin and I had a meeting two years ago, and he said to me, Margaret, in the very near future, 20% of Canada's entire workforce is going to come from Indigenous youth. So we cannot afford to leave our youth standing at the door without providing them a safe, secure home, education, employment, you name it. 
We need to do what we can do to wrap our, our arms around these children today so that they're ready when they age out of care. Uh, and out of care also includes our homes. As you know, most of our affordable housing facilities are driven by a rental structure scale, which says when you turn 18, you're actually deemed an adult now and you have to pay rent now. And you might now be considered overhoused or underhoused. And, you know, all of the, some, the various rules that are put into place sometimes put our children at risk, even within our affordable housing model. And so we've got that competing factor of youth aging out of care. And then we've got, as I said, the elders aging into care. And so we're seeing innovative projects where um, there are, our providers are creating a mixed facility where they have elder, uh, elder care and they have youth aging out of care, semi-independent living facility units, so that the elders can help set the tone and the environment for the youth, and the youth can see the value of supporting their elders in various tasks and duties in the environment. Uh, Lil Mitchiff has a similar model, uh, Nanaimo, uh, Salish Lalem has that model, and we're seeing more of our providers getting innovative in, in creating those mixed models of housing. Well, obviously the work that you're doing is ongoing um, and the reports that you've done and everything that is amazing about AMA, where can folks go to learn more about the work you're doing beyond this conversation? Yeah, thanks. For sure, they can go to our website, www.amma.com. AHMA, A-H-M-A-B-C.org. Uh, you know, we're always open to, to having dialogues. I mean, most people reach out through email. They can reach out to me at mpfoh at AHMA-BC.org uh, or reach out to us by phone, 604-921-2462. Uh, and I'll go so far as to throw my cell phone out there. If anybody wants to reach out, I'm always willing to have the conversation, 604-768-5400. Unblock your caller ID though, because when I see that, I think it's government and I hesitate to answer. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> That is fair enough, for sure. Well, listen, Margaret, I know that at times, and I, we've heard you say that uh, during the podcast, that it's, hey, I've been at this a long, long time, uh, about 28 years since your daughter was born, you know, and it can be frustrating, but the list of accomplishments and things that you've done, the, the lives saved, the lives changed, uh, Wow. You know, and that's what, please don't get discouraged. Remember there's people seeing that you're making a massive difference and we are so grateful for the work you're doing. And we're so grateful for you coming on the show today and educating both of us and hopefully many more uh, that are listening uh, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I should tell you too, that our first guest, the predecessor to this uh, podcast uh, out of the blue, our first guest was Jesse Thistle. And, um, you know, he was, I love Jesse, but as most many people do, but reading his book um, and even, you know, the talk of shame when he told his buddies he was Italian. So he didn't, you know, because he didn't know and he was just, he was shame, he was afraid like and insecure, like many people of that age. Uh, but man, he, he had the best quote and, and it's not super appropriate all the time, but I loved it um, when he said, I said, like, Jesse, how the heck? Did you go from 2012 to 2018? You went from entering university to a PhD. 
And he said, well, listen, man, you know, like when I was on the street, I hustle. He said, no one hustles harder than a crackhead looking for his next score. So he said, I just took that, you know, that workology, that kind of work ethic and, it, and put it, if I took that and put it into something meaningful, this is what happens. And just a change of mentality. But I, I love his, his brutal honesty. And I think that's why he connects with people. But it was an amazing way to start off this journey. And, and, and that journey continues to be amazing because we have individuals like you that join us on the show. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you as well. Wow, Steph, that was, I have to say, Mark has been uh, probably my favorite guest. And not to ostracize anyone else who's come on, you've all been great, but <laughs> I, like this, I, I don't know, maybe I judge about how much I've learned, right? And, yeah. and you know, also when you think you're in, in this and you've, you know, you've done, you've made some, some things happen, but um, the patience that she's shown, the, the determination um, to, to push forward and make real change happen is just incredible. Absolutely. I think when you look at Canada's violent colonial history and you think about folks who have to have that level of patience to work with government, I have just like boundless depths of respect for the level of integrity that takes, but also the bravery to take it on continuously as these things are ongoing and haven't been fixed yet. And you're still coming to tables where folks just don't have that knowledge or don't have that respect. Um, and I think the urban indigenous housing strategy is an example of where we can really begin to fix that. I know there were other funding allotments uh, for First Nations, Inuit, Métis, but I think there's just the more we can be doing, but also where if we were going to move the needle and meeting the federal government's uh, goal to end chronic homelessness, we need these strategies in place that are actually going to address the issue wholeheartedly. You need to take bold action and not apologize. And that's how real change happens. Uh, another amazing guest. Hey, listen, if you're listening to this episode, here's what you can do to be part of the solution. Share this. Tell people to listen. Tell people to get educated and become aware. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week, Steph, on another episode of On the Way Home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.